0: So next up is Smyke and Smyke is from the United States. He moved abroad to Hungary and has had such an amazing time. He's created a wine bar with two friends from UK and Australia and they're doing wine taste things. They're meeting people from around the world. And in this interview, we're going to be talking about wine. And as a novice, It is wonderful to hear from Smyke about the types of wine that he suggests. So tune in if you wanna hear about hungry or wine, moving abroad, starting a business, and more. Welcome to the Are We Home Yet? podcast, where we talk to expats about what it's like living abroad. And they tell their stories, whether it's the struggles, the joys, falling in love, raising a family, managing a business in another country, and maybe still searching for that place they will one day call home. This is a place where you can listen, the guests and hosts will share, and maybe we'll all learn from these stories that we're all connected in what home means to each of us. I'm your host, Jalila Clark. Welcome to the show. All right, welcome back to the Are We Home Yet podcast. And today with me is Mike. Mike, how are you?
1: I'm very well. Thanks for having me on the podcast.
0: Okay, great, no problem. All right, so tell me, where do you currently live, and how long have you been living there?
1: So I live in Budapest, Hungary, and I am coming up on my thirteenth year of living there.
0: Wow, 13th year. Oh my goodness. Okay. All right. So what's it like living in Budapest? Like what's the food like? Or what are the people like? What what's the environment like? Like, tell me all about it.
1: Um, so it's the um, I'm I'm from I'm from the States. So I'm from Pennsylvania. So I would say that it's it's got a really laid back kind of a feel. Um, but it's very artistic. It's very um and it's got a war-torn history, so mm-hmm. the, I, I only say that because in the older population you meet here, there's like a sternness that you that you encounter when you first meet people. Mm-hmm. But I realized after, if you can break through that, which doesn't take long, maybe an hour of sitting down and having you know palinka, which is kind of like their local grappa, uh, you, you make friends really easily here, and the people are they open up and they're absolutely like completely in love with you once you break that barrier, where I think in the United States, it's kind of backwards where we have a lot of uh, small talk, but
2: mm-hmm. it takes
1: a long time to really trust someone. It's mm-hmm. completely flipped on its head here. So I, I love that about Budapest. Mm-hmm. The food is, as you might expect from like a central to Eastern European city, heavy. It's heavy mm-hmm. stuff. So only in the last, you know, maybe five or six years has vegetarian and vegan things even been remotely accepted in the culture here, you know. Vegetarian, I remember vegetarian 13 years ago was, it was a soup that didn't have too much meat in it. So it's changed a little bit, um, but it's, but it still kind of holds on to like this uh, traditional values, which is, which is a beautiful thing. It really is. Uh, So the the people are great. The food's heavy and interesting. Um, Environment. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been in where the weather is fantastic. We have four seasons and the sun's out almost all the time. I can't complain about anything. It's one of the most beautiful places. So if you haven't been, it's, it's a place to check out. And mm-hmm. culture, yeah, like I said, it's, uh, they're hard people, but they're absolutely loyal to a fault. Mm-hmm. They have this whimsical, hilarious pessimism about mm-hmm. everything, um, mm-hmm. which takes you off guard when you're first here. But in their heart, they just they just want to be free. They want to be happy. They want to make lifelong friendships, but they're not afraid to be brutally honest. And I love that. And I think it's kind of rubbed off on me. I tend to be very honest and straightforward. I don't kind of like speak around subjects. We go right to the heart of it here. So I love that.
0: What prompted you to move there? Like, where did you move from? And what prompted you to move there?
1: Okay, so I was living in Philadelphia. I was mm-hmm. working in a retail position because... Um, I decided after I got out of university that I didn't want to take a serious job because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I said, let's take jobs. I don't, I'm not afraid of quitting and walking away from. Mm -hmm. So I worked in a hospital for a few years. I worked in restaurants. I worked in retail and I happened to be working in a retail shop in Philadelphia when my older brother called me to check in. And uh, he's, he's a real motivational guy. He owns his own engineering firm. He's a very successful guy. And He asked me about my day and my life, and and he just wasn't impressed with my answers, which was, you know, I got a job, I got a flat, my friends are cool, you know, and then there's this new band I'm into. None of that was interesting to him. And he said, Stop living an 80% life. And it is something I'll never forget. I have a tattooed on my arm because I went home and I thought, like, what what is he talking about? And I knew, I knew, knowing my brother, that he meant Get a wife, get a real job, get a house, get some equity. I knew he meant that, but mm-hmm. that's not what it meant to me. I thought, yeah. I have never left the country. I've never been more than 100 miles from my hometown other than on like a week-long vacation. Mm-hmm. I'm, that's it. I'm going to go. And I called up my little brother uh, who had studied in China for one of the semesters in university. I said, hey, I'm thinking about going to Japan to teach English. Do you want to come? And he mm-hmm. said, no. I've done Asia. I don't want to do it, but what about Europe? And I said, great, I'll go anywhere. I just got to get out. So we decided to take a a three month trip to Europe. Mm -hmm. And when I went home, I, uh, I was never, I was never the same. Like I couldn't get it out of my system. So I came back.
0: Wow. Wow. So which places did you visit in Europe? And like, what, what couldn't you get out of your system? What, what was it about that 90 day visit?
1: So we landed in London and Americans in Europe get a 90 day travel visa, basically. So I knew I had three months before I had to come back. So we did, we did a lot of the big spots. We did London, Paris, Amsterdam. Um, we did running with the bulls down in Pamplona in Spain and hit Barcelona. And then we went through um, where else did we go? Oh, we went through the, the alps and we went through we went to a few concentration camps which is really important historically mm-hmm. like was like that's that's mind-numbing stuff mm-hmm. um and then i finished up after budapest going to prague which is the place i was the most excited to to be uh and it ended up not being all that amazing the, the two places that really changed my mind about about what i wanted out of the world was berlin and budapest who i feel are very kindred spirits but they're just there's this, there's this thing I have in, in my life that, that changed when I came to Europe was a, a real sense of looking around and saying, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm seeing this. And it's a special bond like I have with my dad because growing up, uh, we were big into playing golf a lot together. And you know we'd go out and there'd always be a moment every you know round where my dad would look at me and he'd be like, Mike, I'll tell you, this, this is living. And he just meant we're having a really special moment. This is really great. The, the weather's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Someone hits to thank God. And every time I was in Europe at somewhere else, waiting for a train, you know, at the bottom of the Swiss Alps, just looking up, I'd be like, man, this is living. This mm-hmm. is amazing. Or we're running into the stadium after running with the Bulls, my little brother, you know, in our white outfits with their little red neckerchiefs and looking around and being like, man, this this really is living. And mm-hmm. I have those moments all the time, still living in Budapest. But as I traveled, every city I went to, you'd have something like that. Just a moment where you stop, you gather what you're looking at, and you're like, I'm here in this moment. And everyone I know that I've ever met is back in my small hometown, 5,000 miles away. And they—they they, a lot of them just are too scared to come. And I didn't understand it because it was so my, so magical. And it still is to me. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the feeling I still retain to this day. And that's why I don't. I don't ever really want to leave. This is such a home, but it's still such a a kind of dreamlike wonderment that I get all the time. So it's, it's hard to shake.
0: So, you know, going back to Budapest and, you know, realizing like, okay, well, that's where I'm going to make my home. How long after you came back from that 90 day trip, did it take you to actually relocate?
1: One year. Basically okay. one year to the day. I came back. I had nowhere to live. So I moved in with my parents again. Who mm-hmm. were lovely. And, you know, we're we're very like very much about going after whatever I wanted,
2: mm-hmm. which is
1: great. I'm very lucky to have the family that I do. But I was sitting in my parents' kitchen uh, making a sandwich maybe. And my mother just said, I could hear behind me, she walked in and said, you're going to go back, aren't you? <laughs> and I think I needed someone to, to tell me it was okay. Mm-hmm. And by saying that, I could tell, like, yeah, it was on my mind and I wanted, I couldn't shake it. I think mm-hmm. I've met a lot of people who come to travel and they love it. And then they go back and they they love the comfort of knowing their life. And they've made a home somewhere else. And it's very comfortable to them. And I, they, they like having all the things in the right place, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I needed, I needed something else and I couldn't shake it. And my mom saw it. And when she when she vocalized it, I knew, okay, yeah, you're right. And it was... It was another couple of months, basically, before I found a job and a way to move here. The year that I was home, I was teaching, uh, I was doing ESL teaching to immigrants in my hometown, helping them prepare for their green cards. Mm-hmm. So I did all this practical teaching. I took an online course to get my certificate. And there was a company here in Budapest that placed teachers with a one-year contract, an apartment, and a visa. And uh, I said, okay, that's it. I'll take it. And that's how I did it. And I enjoyed my year. I taught in a high school and I taught some university classes here. But I knew it wasn't my long term kind of you know goal. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I left teaching because actually one of the huge aspects of travel that I loved was was hostels,
2: mm-hmm. uh, the youth
1: hostel movement of being able to be like in a room with twenty strangers and and kind of have your privacy stripped away from you and realizing wow we're just all kind of the same. I don't. Why, what am I worrying about? It really helps you get out of your own way when mm-hmm. you have no privacy, and that was a big deal to me. So I, I kind of moved back, saying I'm going to teach, but I also want to get into the hostel business. And mm-hmm. I had one friend in Budapest, so I, I got in touch with her, and as I taught all year long, I would also work at her hostel one day a week, and that ended up, you know, becoming my best friend, Susie, who I now own a wine bar with. So mm-hmm. it uh, kind of worked out. It kind of came full circle, and I'm, you know, the wine industry went to what I do now is. It's something that I absolutely adore. But again, I just kind of just fell into it. Um, yeah. And I'm glad that I did. I think that's something that, with travel that I didn't realize. You uh, you have to take things as they come sometimes. And you don't know where you're going to end up. Mm-hmm. But you can't be afraid to take a chance and also be okay with saying, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do for right now. There's so many cities <clears throat> that I would travel to that I didn't expect to be in. And you say, okay, well, this this is where I'm at tonight. And if mm-hmm. I like it, I like it. And if I move on because All we have is choices. So now my choice is wine and I'm really happy that I'm doing it.
0: Okay. Okay. And so what, what is it about wine that, that you enjoy? I mean, obviously the taste is nice, but, but what, what about the wine industry? What about the wine business that you have? Like, what do you enjoy so much about it?
1: I think it, um, I think it came from going to wine regions here in Hungary. There's just so many of them. So it's not a large country. Um, but as you travel around every there's a wine district you know 30 minutes away from budapest then the farthest one is two and a half hours away and there's you know another 20 odd ones in the country so no matter where you go you throw a rock and you're gonna hit wine and when you do that you end up going to these vineyards and meeting these like absolute salt of the earth people who all they want to do is share Mm -hmm. they want to share the process they want to share what they've made with you uh And you can't help but fall in love with it. I I mean, I don't, I never drank wine. And then I was going through a tough breakup and and it was my friend's birthday. And we went to this place called Etchek, which is 30 minutes away from here. My friend Susie had a little house and we went and the locals take you in, they give you their wine. And something about that moment changed me. I I went from such a dark place to being so happy and so loved around everyone. By the end of the day, that's it, I'm a wine person now. And more than that, as I got into it, I realized I loved looking at how it's made. I love looking at the differences between regions and countries. Um, And again, everyone's so inclusive. Everyone, if you drink wine and you meet other people who like it, whether they make it or they sell it or they just enjoy it, there's a kinship there more so than with any other, you know, spirit that I've been in the industry to see because I've run other bars. Something about wine is just really attractive and it brings people together, at least in my life. And I like that connectivity. So once I realized that I like the taste of the wine and I love the people who work in the industry, I thought I've always loved the sense of community and people from all over the world coming together. I said, "Okay, let's let's create something where we can put all those things together. And that's that's the current business we have. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. you know when you know <clears throat> i i really didn't know anything about wine either until like i saw this documentary on netflix called som s-o-m-m and uh yeah i mean the way that like sommeliers study for this exam i mean you would think like they're studying for like their medical like their medical boards to become a, a surgeon i mean it was unbelievably intense and the stuff they talked about in relation to wine I was like how would you know like how would you know like what year it comes from from drinking like I mean it was unbelievable the story that could be told from just a taste of wine but I'm
1: so proud of the wine in Hungary so the the wines that I love are all Hungarian my absolute favorites are from here and there's a there's a place South of Hungary called Villan and Villan has a grape called Cabernet Franc, which is not Hungarian at all. It's French, but they make it in such a special way that it's this broody, dark, heavy red wine. And I've had some of the best conversations of my life late at night over dark Villani Franc with amazing people. So it's hard for me to like shake that wine um, from my Rolodex. So if I, you know, if I have to choose one, one wine or one area, it's always heavy reds from the south of Hungary, but that's just today. Mm-hmm. Honestly, in five years, I might love something else more. Maybe next week I will. It's, uh, it's interesting how your palate changes in the wine industry. So mm-hmm. what I loved when I first started drinking is completely different from what I love now. And that's, that's really a big part of what's fun about this. You're always changing. You're 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 noticing things with every new glass of wine that you didn't notice before. So when you said someone can tell the year, mm-hmm. it's really got very little to like studying the variations in climate mm-hmm. and having to do with tasting the same wine from the same vineyard for a couple different vintages and going, oh my gosh, I get it. I see mm-hmm. what you're saying. This is completely different from this other wine. Mm-hmm. And then you say, why? And they say, not enough rainfall that year. Or... There was a frost right before harvest. And you can't help when you're drinking around winemakers asking these questions because you're experiencing it as they're telling it to you. It just gets locked in the brain. So I can't even tell you. I can't tell you what I've learned from a book as much as I can from listening to winemakers tell me about a specific uh, vintage and a specific grape and how it went totally wrong or totally right. And you only get better at wine by drinking it. So the the, the movie Psalm is incredible.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: a real like look into how absolutely brutal the wine industry is at the top level of trying to understand wine. But what what a lot of people don't gather is that there are so many different levels of psalms. Like these these guys and and women are masters in that movie. But mm-hmm. anybody who's gone to a couple classes, who works in a wine bar, who can tell you a little bit about the wine, basically, is a psalm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just. Do you want to be the LeBron James of Psalms? Because that's your master sommelier. And if you just want to be like a role player in the B League, you can be a guy at a bar who just knows a lot about wine and gets the person the right glass without them feeling foolish or that they don't belong because they don't know the difference between vintages, which is, that's such a ridiculous level to be at. Most people will never get there and they Mm -hmm. never have to they'll enjoy it without it. So there's so many layers to to the wine game and just being a psalm as well. So it's that's a cool movie and mm-hmm. I love it and I really got into it. But me and my friends are all across the board like I never want that. I don't want that for me. Mm-hmm. I don't want that for any of us because it's basically being an Olympian. And I think you need to know at what point you, like how far you want to take it. And for me, I want to travel the world drinking wine and mm-hmm. I want to show people how incredible Hungarian wine is but I'm not trying to be the most knowledgeable guy about wine in the world. I don't, I don't ever want to talk about, you know, uh, the, how special yeah. the 1977 vintage of <laughs> Chateau de was. I don't care. That's not exciting to me, yeah. but I want to look in someone's eyes when they're drinking something that they find magical and say, ah, what did you like about that? Cause I can tell this is your wine. I love those. Yeah.
0: Let's cut to a quick commercial break. Enjoying the podcast? Then support the podcast. Click here to donate in the show notes and keep the cool interviews with guests from around the world going. Check out the blog for handy information about living abroad and buy the ebook, a great guidebook for moving abroad. Find the blog and ebook at the website, arewehomeyetpodcast.com. Again, that's arewehomeyetpodcast.com. You can also donate. On the website by scrolling all the way to the bottom and finding the donate button. All right, back to the show now.
2: That's why yeah. I do it. Okay.
0: And so tell me, um, so actually, let me go back to something uh, before that I still am a little bit curious about. So you mentioned that, you know, you were a teacher, like you went over there first as a teacher, and then, you know, obviously, eventually got into this business that you have. So what was the visa process like to first go over there, and then now to continue to stay there as, as a business person? It
1: is both ridiculous and understandable to a degree that it is really hard work here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh, my first year visa, the company took care of everything. I have I have always paid somebody, uh, lawyers, companies uh, to do this for me because it is a nightmare trying mm-hmm. to trying to like grease the wheels of a country that sometimes doesn't want you. Definitely doesn't appreciate that you don't speak their language, mm-hmm. and doesn't realize like why you're there. Because when I first moved here, the immigration office was a very cold, barren, heartless place. <laughs> but you knew that once a year, or once a, every two years, depending on your visa, you were going to have to go back there. There would be a day you'd be there for seven hours, and no one would care. They would treat you like you shouldn't be here, but you just have to grin and bear it, and just get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, My first lawyer ever here, because I I asked, it was the second or third attempt um, to extend my visa. And I said, you know, is there, I mean, is there really going to be a problem here? And he said, "Uh, you come from an attractive country, so it should be fine. And I remember (laughs) thinking, that's not awesome. I feel bad for anyone that doesn't come from a quote unquote attractive country. And as I realized, it's not a joke. I've had friends who studied here from Nigeria kicked out of the country. who are here for master's and PhDs Mm -hmm. and who are deemed unfit to be here. And it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And just because I'm an American, somehow I can get by and and they're okay. But to be honest, it's it's also backfired on me too. Mm -hmm. I got denied my fourth, I think it was my fourth or fifth two-year extension. I was denied because part of the visa process is saying, how much money do you make? And there was a waterline basically that you just have to be above. So for your age, for your lot in life, you have to make this much money based on whatever the criteria. And again, it's it's just age and your industry. So mm-hmm. we put in my salary, which is well above the line, and they denied me because they said in their written transcript, because you're American, you need to make more money than that. You can't survive on that, whereas other people from other countries know how to survive on less than you. So I got denied. And my lawyer said, oh, it's ridiculous. Uh, we'll just... We'll just fight it. And and they did. They fought it and he said, Um, this is not for you to decide he's above the line, give him the visa. And they did. But mm-hmm. there's always that in the back of my head, like, is that gonna happen again? Are they gonna deny me for something ridiculous? And there's such a laissez-faire attitude of the Hungarian lawyers in this country that, like, don't worry, even if they deny it, we'll get it the next time. And as the you know, going through it a couple of times, you get less and less scared. So now, 13 years in. I don't worry. I, I've been here for so long. Uh, I speak more of the language now than I used to, which is still not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, and I have a, I have business interests here. I'm, I'm currently uh, buying a flat. Like I'm doing everything that people, you know, the the country wants you to do to be able to stay. So I'm not really worried. But again, like, will they drag it out or will they just give it to me on time? And you never know. I will say, full disclosure, so much better than it used to be. Mm -hmm. because now i will go to the immigration office like i said once every two years and the last time i was shocked i walked in and this guy smiled which that that doesn't happen (laughs) he looked me in the eye hey how can i help you in perfect english and i was shocked i was Mm -hmm. like wow this is am i a mcdonald's or or like the immigration offices this never happens and Mm -hmm. he guided me exactly to where i needed to go and was really lovely now, did I still wait seven hours for someone to give me the news I didn't want to hear? Absolutely, I did. But he was very sweet and it made the experience a little bit better. And this is what I've loved about Hungary in the past like decade I've lived here is this outstretched hand they have that says, stop, don't talk to me. I don't know who you are. I don't want to be smiley. To now giving people the benefit of the doubt when they meet them and saying, hey, this is a bad process. This stinks. Let me help you. I really do care. Because Hungarians really do care but they've never shown it the way that they did, at least the last time I was at the immigration office. So I'm really happy with what's happening, but that's just my experience. And like I said, I've had friends kicked out of the country for absolutely no reason. And that's, that's a heartbreaking reality that happens not only in Hungary, but in a lot of places where your differences, sometimes as much as they bring you together, which has been my experience, they push a lot of people away, um, depending on what they think about your background or your choices. So it's, it can be a bit hard um, hard, but for me, it's, it's always worked out.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, so then tell me, you know, well, what's your day to day like? Cause you spoke about the visa process, like seven hours. So, you know, aside from that, like when you're not having to deal with the visa process, what's your day to day like?
1: I have a very cruisy lifestyle. <laughs> I, uh, everything i do is about wine basically mm-hmm. uh, and it's funny because i have so many moments where i'm working or right, i'm telling my friends about work and they're like that that's your job and <laughs> and i'm like yeah, it is so i we we don't open our shop on mondays and tuesdays but i usually come anyways because i want to update pricing and i want to get ready for the week because we have a we have a wine bar we also have a delivery business um this is where our company is starting but in the end i mean long term we'd love to do importing and exporting and traveling, and I'd love to do writing and podcasting about wine, uh, especially as an American living in Hungary, trying to give people a little bit of an access to wines that they've never heard about. Mm -hmm. But Mondays and Tuesdays is kind of like back office things. Or I meet winemakers. I travel to wine regions here in Hungary, and I just taste wine. and And I talk about it. And I decide, is it right for our people or is it not? Wednesday through Sunday when we're open, me and my uh, business partner, Susie, we, we both work at the same time. So we're owners and basically, you know, tenders. We make wine tasting lists each week. We have, a, we have a thing on Wednesday called New Wine Wednesday, where we bring in eight wines. They're completely blind. We put them in bags so you can't see them. And we play a game. So you drink, you have a small taste of the wine, and we have like a cheat sheet, which is a scorecard, which tells you it's one of these eight regions it's one of these eight wines these eight different uh, alcohol you know volume uh, abb basically and it's a game so you drink you talk with everyone else that's at the table and then you you decide where you think it's from and we have a little you know explaining area as well to say like if you think it's a cabernet sauvignon this is what they normally taste like from these different places so it's a way to learn a little bit about wine but it's a game you know so you mm-hmm. can go there with no wine experience drink the wine play the game. And if you win, you get a bottle of wine at the end. So it's kind of a fun way to learn wine without thinking about learning. You're just having fun with your friends. So we do that on Wednesdays and the rest of the week is different tastings or live music uh, where we kind of shine a spotlight on a local producer and bring in their wines. We usually do this on Thursday and we call it thematic Thursday and maybe it'll be only sweet wines from Tokai. And we try to, you know, give people a reason to come out to learn a little bit about wine, but not make it so stuffy because uh, man, that's such a turnoff in the wine industry is that you make it so inaccessible to people that they don't want to come because they're embarrassed. Mm -hmm. So me and Susie are always like, Hey, we don't know anything about wine. We just drink a lot of it. So come and drink with us. And I promise just, you know, just by putting some of this stuff in your mouth, you'll take away something from it because it always leads to questions like, why is it like this? Or, why does this color stand out cuz people are really you know they they want to they want to learn they want to they want to know what they're drinking and why it's so special so it always ends up just coming up naturally and uh and we get to teach people a little bit from the little knowledge that we have but most importantly like you can enjoy wine in a carefree place and that's my day to day every single day every single week and in the meantime i only take time off to go to wine festivals or wine fairs so that i can meet new owners Uh, meet new winemakers and invite them to come and drink with me and my friends. I mean, it's, it's really that simple. I just want people to share wine in my bar all the time. And that's how my business partners feel too. And uh, we live like that. So we're not, we're not like other wine places. We really, I don't know if it looks like we don't take it seriously or we're just having fun, but I can assure you, we take it very seriously and we have a lot of fun and I think that's how it should be. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my life in one.
0: Okay. You know, and I'm glad that you mentioned wine festivals because honestly, like, I always wondered, like, where do you go to find like these wines that you would then suggest to your clientele?
1: Every country is really different when it comes to wine trade. this is what makes it really, really difficult. Like I have only one line of American wines in my bar because it is so incredibly hard to get them here. There is so much red tape from cellar door to bar depending on how many countries like you just physically have to pass through. It's really difficult um, for people. So <clears throat> for me personally, I have to look for, if I want international things, I have to find importers in Hungary that will bring things in because the laws here are absolutely ridiculous. You mm-hmm. think like, Oh, we're in the EU, you know, I'm part of the Schengen, any of these countries we can freely just grab wine from a correct. That's not how it works. Well, you know, we, we thought honestly it was as easy as calling someone in France and saying, Send me, send me six cases of this wine. I really like it. And then we would have it next week and we would sell it. Like we were that, you know, stupid coming into the game that we thought that's how it was. And I remember meeting our meeting our tax attorney the first time, and she's like, No, that's not how it works at all. I hope you didn't plan your whole business around that fact. And we were like, nope. Nope, totally, totally. We kind of, we, we, were, we were wondering, but we, we absolutely did. Mm-hmm. And so we have to meet importers, of which there are, you know, you have to find distributors. If they're coming to Europe, there's these massive wine trades. Like there's one in Germany next month called Pro Wine. It's the mm-hmm. biggest wine, uh, not festival so much, but it's a business-to-business like wine kind of conference, I'd say in the world, it's the biggest one. There will be mm-hmm. thousands. Um, so you go there to find, you know, what's happening in the business, trade partners, um, little wineries that you've never heard of. And to be honest in Hungary, you know, I want people to just know that Hungary makes wine. I mean, at the smallest level for us, we need people to know that Hungarians make absolutely breathtaking wine. So Hungary will have its own little area at pro wine. Are you talking about thousands of people coming through and they're trying to find that, that one, you know, needle in a haystack winery or new kind of, uh, I guess, way of serving wine that other people haven't thought of, and and that's a big one because we have to keep the business open. But even in Hungary, we have a lot of them as well. So every single district uh, or wine region will do will do a festival at certain times. And there's there's wine uh, conglomerations here that are wine groups basically that say, okay, this week it's only the wines of Egér, and you meet in a local hotel and you'll taste all of them. So that's the way we do it in this, you know, in this country and in this city. But I, honestly, if you ask someone who works in say in Mendoza in Argentina, how do you find wines? I bet they have a completely different answer. It's mm-hmm. what makes this, this industry really fun because no matter like where, where you are and what kind of wine you're into, and even just the geography of where you live vastly changes the way that you can get wine and sell wine to other people. Because as a, as a commodity that's like really tightly regulated, I mean, alcohol in general, you really are playing with different rules at every step of the way, depending on which country you're in, which wine you wanna deal with and like who your trade partners are. So it's, a, it's the, the thing I never thought about when we got into it. And I, you know what? I would never think to study this and look into it, but you can't help when you're in it now. If I find a wine somewhere that I love it, I have to say, okay, how can I get that here? Who do I call? What's the tax? Who's the professional that can get it? So it's it's so much behind the scenes that people don't think about the, the wine that they have on their table that's not from the country they're living in. And it's it's a lot of work, but it's it's always worth it. When you find that special thing, you'll go to the ends of the earth to get it. And so yeah, that's that's the process. And it's it's actually harder than that and easier mm-hmm. than that at the same time, depending on where you live. So mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, so you've mentioned, you know, really how cool your job is, but what, what are the struggles and joys of owning your own business?
1: Uh listen, the, the buck stops with you if you own your own place. So if you're mm-hmm. successful, it's all on you. Um and if you're not successful and it's very evident that's all on you as well. So you get to enjoy everything. But at the same time, when you're really good at it, when you have a really successful company, you know it's it's got very little to do with you. It's got everything to do with the staff you have or the people who come in. Like me and my business partners, we love wine and we're passionate about it. But without the people in the community that love coming here and then like continually putting up with our wild ideas, it doesn't matter. So I think owning owning your own business is, is exhilarating because I'm also the kind of person who's... We have the saying in our company, always working, never working, which means I'm always on, but it never feels like work. So I love doing what, what I do. So I can work seven days a week. There's never a moment where I'm like upset to come to work or upset that I have to stay late. I would spend all of my time in my wine bar if I could. Um, but, you know, friends want to see outside of work too. So I think the the only hang up is that, especially in Hungary, things do not go as fast as you want them to go. And, you know, there's bureaucracy everywhere. So currently, our bar is waiting for our late license, which is a huge deal. You know, in America, you usually have to buy like a liquor license from somewhere. I always remember that being a thing in Pennsylvania, at least. So when you come here, you just sign up for your country or your uh, company. You get the licenses without question, really. But you have to deal within the framework of the district you're going to be operating. So we're in the sixth district here in Budapest, which means every bar, when you first open with a new company, you have to close at 10 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And a bar is just not a great business to open that can't be open. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to kick everyone out of our bar every single night at 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Because... We have to apply for a late license. So I had to go to. go we have to go to every person who owns a flat in our building and appeal to them to say, yes, we're allowed to stay open. Oh, wow. Then you have to have someone come in and read the decibel level of your bar and the neighboring apartments to make sure it falls within a, a certain parameter. Mm-hmm. And then if those things work out, then you take it to the local council, which meets maybe once a month. And they can say, oh, even though you've done everything right, we don't care. You still don't get your license. And mm-hmm. if that happens, you start the process all over again, and that's mm-hmm. what we're doing now. And we've been doing it since the day we opened seven months ago. So, mm-hmm. I would say there's a lot of frustration when you're on your own business because there are so many doors you have to walk through to get what you want. Mm-hmm. But if you care, you realize like this is it's all part of the it's the adventure. Like this is this is one of those things I try to remind my business partners. Like when you look back at like the good old days, like these are the good old days we're in now, struggling to get the things we want. Because once you're successful and you're on top, or you're at least turning out profit all the time and can hire a bunch of people, I think some businesses forget how much fun the struggle was in the beginning. There was nothing like having the meeting with the people who live in this building. They came into our bar to have the vote and they gave us a unanimous yes vote. And they all said, you guys are so nice. Your bar is so lovely. We absolutely want you to be able to stay open as late as you want. And it was beautiful because I'd only met three or four of them trying to get signatures for this list. And when they all came, they were all basically felt the same way. Like y- you guys are good people. We want you to be successful. And that mm-hmm. was such a huge victory. But 10 years from now, well, that, that might mean more than us opening up a second location or having an import business, you know, like that, that first thing, because without that first hump, you're like, I, maybe it wouldn't have worked out. Mm-hmm. And we have lots of moments like that. So I think small victories are absolutely the best. Mm -hmm. And when something, when a roadblock comes in, I'm okay with it. I've lived in Hungary for 13 years. There's so many reasons to make you quit, but you just don't, you just keep going. And if you, if you, not my words, I've heard this before. If you bang your head against the wall long enough, I mean, eventually you probably crack through that wall when you get to the other side. And I think that's our approach to being successful in the wine business. Just, just stay on the path. Because like I said before, I'm, Every single day, I am with my friends, drinking wine from people that I get to meet who are so proud of what they make. And I just don't think a better way of living. So no matter what, I'm living my life as great as I can, doing what I love. And in the long run, I know we're going to be great. And I know we're going to get to where we need to be. But I need to be here right now enjoying it. With that mentality, we're always terrific. So yeah, owning your own business is a struggle. I know for a lot of people, there's late nights, there's early mornings. There's too many times I've gotten a phone call at 8 a.m. from a wine distributor who is at my door and I have to ride here on my bicycle to collect one box of wine because that was the only time that could fit me in. But mm-hmm. that's what you do. That's fine. You know, like it's mm-hmm. part of the game and I'm happy to play it.
0: So, you know, um, when when you were in the United States, though, I mean, were you an entrepreneur in any way or had you hoped to be an entrepreneur or did you have family of friends that were entrepreneurs that you could see like, you know, what what was involved in creating a business and successfully running it? Like I'm really curious because y- you sound like you've done well. So where where did this knowledge come from? Where did this, you know, like yeah, where where did this come from? Was it just trial and error? Or did you actually have people that y- you had looked to or prior experience? Uh
1: so no, it's um I think I fell into this. I failed my way to
0: where Mm -hmm. I am. And I wouldn't
1: wouldn't even say that I'm successful. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I'm doing something I love with my best friend. That's Mm -hmm. that's very successful to me. Mm -hmm. But at home, no. I always worked for other people. And I Mm -hmm. never, ever once thought about owning my own business. Mm -hmm. I actually went to school because I wanted to be a sports reporter.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: I had a a job at the last year of university working for a local sports uh, uh, newsroom. And I hated it. And like the wall came crumbling down of oh wow, everything I thought I wanted, I really don't want. So from then on, that's kinda of why I took all these jobs I could walk away from because I realized I have not I've never thought for myself. I, I it's it's a real sad like it's a sad sentence. But to be honest, I was I was really good at most things I did growing up. I was always good at, at athletics. Mm-hmm. I was I was uh was smart enough to get through school without trying hard at all. Mm -hmm. And you know, I remember getting done with university and thinking, oh, oh, I like I choose now. And I had no idea what to do. Mm -hmm. I, I had no idea. I did I was not prepared at all for what was gonna come, which is, hey, you can do anything you want. And I was just like, I can do anything, but I don't know what I want and I don't have the skills to do anything. And it was just It was a really messy time, at least in my head thinking, I'm so scared. I wish someone would tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I've always been a bit of a late bloomer. So I, so I'm just like, okay, well it's going to come and it's going to come. And I didn't go traveling until I was 27. And when I, uh, when I got to Europe and I met my friend Susie, who is my same age and she had her own hostel, Mm -hmm. I thought, this is it. This is someone who gets it and is not afraid to take chances. And Mm -hmm. I've, you know, I've learned, I've learned primarily from her that mm-hmm. you, need to, you need to blag it until you can make it. So it's basically like fake it until you make it. If you don't mm-hmm. know the answer, make it up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's ridiculous. You have to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Incorrect. You don't have to know what you're doing. In fact, most people pretend they know what they're doing, but they have no idea. Mm-hmm. So my, my older brother, he owns his own engineering firm, as I said before. He, I look up to him massively, but it's mm-hmm. only been in the last years that i've talked business with them Mm. before that it was passionate people and we would laugh and have stories and there'd be athletics talk and stuff but nope i i got into this and i said okay i'm gonna do this i'll figure it out and i have failed Mm. every way you can fail Mm -hmm. first the first bar i I ran my friends hostels and Mm -hmm. i said i'm gonna try everything to see what works and you try something nope fall flat on your face try something else Nope, nobody likes it. And you just get good at failing. Uh-huh. You just get good at saying, I don't care if it doesn't work. I'm gonna try it. And the crazier it is, sometimes the bigger, you know, response you get from people, which is great. So I, I was also lucky enough to work for my friends who said, fail as much as you want. I don't care. We'd rather creativity than, you know, dollar bills, because that doesn't matter. You want something that's that's gonna last, that's a legacy, that's that's being good to people and trying stuff. Uh-huh. And you know, we got to March of 2020, the pandemic hits. I lost my job, my very secure job at my friend's hostel because all of the hostels closed. You mm-hmm. have 550 beds, but nobody, nobody's allowed to come and stay. You realize pretty quickly how untenable that business is. So mm-hmm. they all went away. I had a craft beer bar and live music venue here. Lost it, totally gone. And I had a uh, tattoo uh, partnership with my friend. We had a little shop. That stayed open, but that didn't generate any money. All we could do was keep our staff there, basically, and keep them making tattoos and, and earning what little income they could. But essentially, that business went under as well. And I, you know, was 39 years old. I go, wow, okay, here we are again. And I didn't, I didn't freak out because I have the most incredible friendship circle here in Budapest where people will never let me go hungry or homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, I have an incredible family at home and go, you, you know, you moved to Budapest without really anything. You can, you can start again. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important to, to not be afraid to go, no matter what, I just, I'll just i start over. I believe in me and I believe in my friends. And that's what happened. That's why I'm here now. It has got nothing to do with being good at business. I'm not. I've mm-hmm. got so much to learn. But mm-hmm. I love it. I, I'm passionate about it. And I'm also not unwilling to learn what I'm bad at. You know, so I don't I don't claim to be good at anything. I I will show up every day and fail at stuff. But you learn a lot when you fail. You really do. It's it's a it's a crash course and could you get there quicker? Probably. You find an incredible mentor or you maybe you go to business school, but I don't know, you don't learn how to fail well until you fail often. And and that's how I get that's how I got here. And success is it's different to everybody. I love what I do and I love who I do it with. I'm Mm -hmm. successful at that, so
0: Okay. And and I'm glad that you mentioned about COVID. Yeah, because I mean I did wonder, like, you know, of course, COVID <laughs> created such massive change around the world for everyone. Um, so I, I did wonder, you know, how did that affect you and and working for yourself or working working for a company? And and I did wonder, but it is good that you were able to get through that. When was the last time that you were able to go back home to America? And what do you miss about America?
1: I have not been home in many years. Mm-hmm. Um, I went home probably, I want to say a year before COVID for mm-hmm. a wedding, the last time I got to go home. So it's been, it's been a while. Um, the only thing I miss is like being able to see my nieces and my nephews grow up you know, mm-hmm. and my, you know, I'm going to give my mom a hug, you know, or go, uh, go play some golf with my dad. You know, I, I 100% miss that, but mm-hmm. I talk to them every single week. So I still have this, you know, face-to-face interaction with my parents that I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about mm-hmm. other things from America. I, I, you know, this sounds, this may sound like ridiculous, but I don't miss anything. I mm-hmm. really don't. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think there's wonderful things about the United States. Um but my, my, I, adore where I live. I really mm-hmm. do. You know, and you can say like, there's little things like, oh, maybe customer service. But I think it's funny how bad the customer service can be in Europe sometimes. It's hilarious to me. Like that's a, that's a real funny, unique thing we have here. And the convenience, you know, like, oh, you missed the convenience. Uh, this is, this is the all honest truth. The, the only thing I miss is when something goes horribly wrong and you need someone to come and fix something right now. Mm-hmm. We don't have. You know, I my my apartment it was like six or seven years ago. There was a flood. There was water coming out of the lighting in the ceiling of my house. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember you call a plumber, and they'd say, "Oh, maybe I come on Monday." And I'm like, "It's Saturday. Those mm-hmm. water coming out of the lights now." And they said, "Okay, maybe I come tomorrow morning." You're like I don't get your maybe. And they like, "Okay, goodbye." You get off the, I've had that phone call four or five times with electricians or plumbers, and you don't know, are they coming? Are they not? You try to call them back. The phone just rings. No one picks up. And Mm -hmm. you feel like, okay, I guess I got to wait until the water stops coming out of the lights. And and you figure things out for yourself, which is one of those learning experiences. I go, okay, do I wish someone would come and help me out right now? Yes. Do I need it? No, I can survive without it. So I guess you learn some patience in moments like that. But yeah, I guess the convenience of the United States, when you need something right now, you can have it. That's one small minor thing that I only think about when I absolutely need it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I don't miss anything else. I really don't. I don't miss driving. I left the United States because I hated driving. I ride a Mm -hmm. bicycle here. I'm so happy I do. I walk with our public transportation infrastructure is Absolutely fantastic. I love trains too. So it's if I want to go, you know, anywhere in this country or outside, I can get on a train and go there. So I don't miss the transportation. I don't miss the food. I don't miss, I mean, music is everywhere. The movies are everywhere. Entertainment, live sporting events. Yeah, that's tough. I would love to go to an NFL game every now and again, but they come to Europe. So I can still go do that if I want to go to London and I have in the past. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just it's the family. And the friends, being able to wrap your arms around someone you love, look them in the eyes, sit down and have a meal with them. Yeah, that's it. I miss that. That's tough. Mm-hmm. But, but the rest of it, no. And in my back pocket, always, is that I'm American. I can always go back. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad told me that when I was getting in, when I was getting on my flight to move here, I've never, I don't see my dad cry often, but he was a little teary. And I knew this was a big deal for him. And he said, you can always come back. Mm -hmm. And I've never forgotten that. My mother said that too. And I tell that to other people when they want to travel and they want to take a job. They're like, I don't know if I should do it. And I always tell them, like, if you fail, you can just go home and it's okay. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, exactly. You're not being held hostage. You're absolutely right. You can leave. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You're allowed to go there and change your mind. That's Mm -hmm. okay. And your family, what, they're going to turn you away because you, you wanted to go teach in like Taiwan and it didn't work out? So what mm-hmm. you're a failure, like, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Try. And mm-hmm. if you hate it, even if you hate it one month in, just get a flight home, it's okay. Yeah. you know something valuable about yourself, you'd rather be back at home, and that's important to you. Learn that lesson, because otherwise, the, the only other side of it is that you're going to have to wait and see if you regret it, never taking that chance. And you don't regret the stuff you tried. You regret the yeah. stuff you're just too afraid to get into. And that's that's a, that's a feeling I don't want to feel.
0: So. Yeah. You know, speaking of regretting the stuff that not regretting the stuff that you've tried, I, I was a little bit curious about the sportscaster thing, because you had mentioned that, wow, you know, you wanted to be a sportscaster. And then when you tried it, man, you hated it. So what what was it about it that you didn't like?
1: I, um, I was I was wondering if we were going to talk about this because I knew I was going to have to talk about like what I did. Before. <laughs> um, so I was prepared to talk about how this didn't work out because mm-hmm. it wasn't that I wanted to be a sportscaster. Okay. I wanted to be like an on-air personality talking about sports. And okay. the president of ESPN actually went to the same university as me. I went to the University of Scranton, a small Jesuit university. Hmm. And he went there for the undergrad. And I got to meet him at a talk one time. Mm-hmm. And uh, an ex-professor an ex- said, hey, you know, he really wants to get in. What do you think? And the president of ESPN gave me his email and said, if you ever want to come to Bristol, Connecticut at ESPN, just give me an email. I'll put you in a production workshop. And we'll see what happens. And I never did it. And I didn't do it for for what I thought was really good reasons at the time. One, I really disliked the one job I had in sports. Because what you're doing is basically biding your time and waiting for something to happen and hoping you can get it on camera and then talk about it for a little bit. That's the local media circuit, basically. So I would drive around um, with the lead uh, sports uh, caster, and we would, I would take video and I would edit the video, and then he would talk about it. And after like a month of doing it, I was like, this is not a fulfilling job. But I always wondered, like, man, ESPN, that's, that's, like, that's the top of the heap. That's exactly where I wanted to be. But I, I really thought about sending it an email and giving it a shot. And then I go, wait, like, it's, it's based in Bristol, Connecticut. Uh-huh. Which is not fun. You're out in the middle of nowhere, and what would I be doing other than maybe working at so some low level like production job on a fishing channel? You know, like it, would I be would I be living the life, or would I be watching life happen and telling other people about it, or just filming what life looks like? Uh-huh. And that's what it all came down to to me. I wanted to get away from like watching people live, and I wanted to live. Because what I loved about athletics growing up was I loved playing sports. I loved making friends and pushing myself physically. That's got nothing to do with being a sportscaster. It's got nothing to do with writing local you know, op-ed pieces about sports. None of that has got anything to do with playing sports. I realized I can always be athletic. Mm-hmm. And I can always talk to people about sports. And I can always tell them my opinions about things. But I can also see the writing on the wall in the sports industry when I was getting out of university that it was ex-athletes who were getting the time in front of the camera. It was not going to be some like guy, kid from Scranton who never even played professional anything who was going to get the time. No one was going to listen to me. The best I could do would say, hey, um, amazing comeback by the Wizards last night, and then throw it to a professional athlete who was going to then talk about their experiences. And I saw the writing on the wall and I go, do I really want to do that? And at the time, I really didn't want to do it. And I didn't know what was going to happen to me. So I thought, I'm going to have this email for forever. This guy's not going to go anywhere. If I ever fail when I go traveling or fail or whatever, I've got the email and I'll give it a go. And I've kept it to this day. I don't even know if he's still in charge of ESPN, but I have it. I was grateful for someone letting me like shoot my shot. But the more I thought about it, I just I don't think that's the shot I wanted. And mm. and if I had taken it, I wouldn't have come to Europe. I wouldn't be doing what I would do now. I wouldn't I wouldn't have this absolutely magical life that I would fight for tooth and nail. So. Mm okay. I'm okay. You know, if there's anything um, to be regretful for, it's that there's still so many places I haven't gone and I didn't do it sooner, Mm -hmm. but I'm still okay with where I am. I'm I'm grateful for where I am.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then speaking of life and living and, you know, this magical life, I, I love those two words that you put together. I love that magical life. What's your quality of life like in terms of like, What's the cost of living, uh, there compared to America? What's your, it sounds like, like you're safe there. So your safety doesn't sound like an issue. So what, what are those aspects like? Uh,
1: quality of living here is higher than anywhere I've ever been. That's, that's Mm -hmm. really the easy answer with why people want to stay here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Quality of life. Again, I, I think if you ask ten people, you're going to get ten different answers. But it's cheap to live here. So even though the cost of rent has gone up astronomically, um, it's still affordable. Yeah. Uh, even though the inflation is at an all time high, it is still really cheap to go to the grocery store. If you want to cook for yourself, it is still absolutely achievable to go out to get a dinner with your friends and not break, you know, your uh, your your paycheck in half. Uh, and also because I'm in the nightlife industry and I've always enjoyed going out for a drink with my friends, man, I remember at the United, in the United States be like, on a weekend night, and this was like, you know, 15 years ago, oh, $100, $150, and then that's, you know, if I'm just going to regular bars in my hometown, I can't remember the last time I spent $100 in Europe out in a night. I just don't, it just doesn't happen. You know, so the cost of living is cheap here. Um, also, the infrastructure, as I mentioned before, I ride my bicycle everywhere. So mm-hmm. it's it's completely safe in Budapest. I've never felt unsafe. Um, it's, I mean, wildly active because I'm always riding my bike or walking everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, we have this beautiful park system in Budapest. We have this gorgeous river. Um, people in Europe don't hide in their house on days off. They mm-hmm. go outside. You know, like we don't, like there's, don't get me wrong. There's people in Budapest with these beautiful big mansions and everything but the majority of regular people live in a small flat mm-hmm. and they're only in the flat to live for dinner. And like, that's it. And they go out when there's a holiday, the parks are filled in Europe. And I remember holidays back home. No one's at the park. You're at your family's house, maybe having a dinner or whatever, but here they do both. You go, okay. We're going to go to the park all day. And then everyone's going to come to the house. So we're going to get dinner. We're going to have a six hour dinner, you know? <clears throat> so it's not, comparable with like living back in the United States it's cheaper here to live it's better for my health to live here it's safer here by a country mile um and you feel much more sense of community mm-hmm. I know it's a big city here 1.8 million people but just seeing people out in the sunshine walking sitting in the grass at a park with a bottle of wine which is legal here which is pretty nice mm-hmm. and no one caring mm-hmm. nobody trying to like it, like enforce their lifestyle on you Mm-hmm. Here is just this just live, just have fun, don't take anything too seriously because you're gonna die someday and you should oh. enjoy your life before you die. And I feel like in the United States, it's always somebody telling someone else how to live, or you have this feeling on your shoulders of this is what I should be doing, but I don't want to be doing that thing. And you know, again, I've only lived in Philadelphia and before that, Scranton, so I got a very sample size of what the U.S. is. I'm sure there's some cities that are very much like budapest but they probably cost more and you probably need a car and mm-hmm. i'm cool with not having those things so yeah mm-hmm. the quality of life here is exactly what i wanted it to be which i think is what everyone should be able to say for themselves
2: mhm mhm
0: wow okay so so that's that's an interesting experience um and the other one was of course you know the plumber situation um any other interesting experiences that you've had there in budapest yeah i was i was also
1: thinking about this earlier because I I worked for one of the most world-renowned, probably infamous party hostels in the world mm-hmm. for ten years, called Retox. Okay. So I can't tell you any stories from there. None of them are going to be none of them are going to be good. So I had to think all day, what can I tell her? What story can I tell her? And I have two that are very family friendly. One okay. time I was on I was on the the uh, the Hungarian version of Big Brother uh, oh. because. I, I know a girl who's a musician here. And she said, oh, I got a friend who's a producer on the show. Do you want to be on it? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll be on the show. So me and my bandmate, Brian, who's from Canada, we agreed to go on this show. Uh, we were a traveling band. This is the backstory. And we go into the Big Brother house and we have to stay the night and just see what happens. And they had to cook us dinner. We played music for them. I had to do a workout with this like super you know fitness guy who I'm still friends with online to this day. And my buddy Brian had to like, you know, take his clothes up and get like a back rub. And uh, we've watched the episode a million times since because we're on for like 15 minutes, but it's still one of the weirdest, most bizarre things. We sat in a room all day, basically waiting for them to tell us to go. And then we went into this house, which was kind of built inside of like an igloo, but like just a glass igloo. So it was completely away from everyone. And then the big brother house, like, there's no sunlight, there's no nothing. They're just inside for months and months and months. They were so happy to see us, and almost none of them could speak English. So for like for like the 20 hours we were there was just so bizarre and so weird, and there's one like there's one cut in the in the episode where we're sleeping. We're sleeping in a pullout bed, me and my friend Brian, and he's married, and he just went to his roots in the middle of the night, just put his arm around me, and that's still in the television episode. so every time we show it to our friends. Is me and my friend Brian sleeping in a bed in the middle of the night. And he just puts his arm around me because he thought I was his wife. So that was fun. That was interesting. Uh, the only other, not the only other, but another one that that is actually highlights how incredible Europe is and how close everything is, is that my friends um, are big cyclists. So they said, hey, we read this article in The Guardian about this woman who used this old Austro-Hungarian railway line that closed and traveled from, where would we go from? We went from Croatia to, I think we started in Bosnia and went down to Croatia. Uh, Oh, we started in Sarajevo. That's where it was. And We went down to Croatia. So we took, we rented bicycles and did three days of mountain biking from Mostar basically down to Dubrovnik. And it was the most incredible bike ride. Three days of like going through these old caves of the Austro-Hungarian railway line with bats and then finding these little villages that were completely abandoned, this like wilderness where there's, there's signs on the side of the road saying, watch out for snakes and landmines. And you're like, what is this? And then pulling into Croatia, going down the hill, you know, into Dubrovnik, where which is obviously King's Landing for mm-hmm. everyone who is Game of Thrones. and You're like, I'm really here. I'm really doing this. This was, as my dad would say, like, this is living. And there were so many of those moments on that bike ride. As torturous as it was in some aspects, um, it was still one of the coolest things I've ever done. And it was a it was it cost me the flight from Budapest to Sarajevo and back basically with a car rental in between and some bikes. It was it was achievable. And and it wasn't that hard for us to put together, which I love here. Like there's so many adventures you can have that really don't cost that much to do. You just have to say, I'll book the flight. And I'll book the accommodation and I'll figure out the rest when I get there. And I'll never forget it. So those are, those are two stories that, that stick with me for a while. For sure.
0: What would you say have been the struggles and joys of being an expat?
1: Okay. Um, the struggles, I think uh, one of the funnest, funnest struggles I always had, which I always liked is going to grocery stores and not knowing what you're getting. It was a A lot harder when I first got here because Hungarian is an absolutely ludicrous and yet beautiful language. But if you don't know it, it doesn't look like anything else. (laughs) And it doesn't sound like anything else. So grocery store shopping is frustrating. But, you know, if you look at it from outside of your body, it's really funny. You know, and I've learned to laugh at the mistakes I make. But now 13 years later, it's, it's pretty easy. Anytime you have to do anything legal, anytime you have to do anything like in a hospital that's always frustrating. There is nothing worse than like feeling ill, having to go to a hospital and like nobody wanting to treat you. Nobody wanting to be helpful or they want to be as helpful as they can, but they're burned out. You know, the the medical industry here in Hungary is is, is struggles. It absolutely does. There's private healthcare providers, but, you know, I pay into the local uh, economy my taxes go towards me having health insurance. So, I broke my hand on my bicycle once and I had to go get it reset and everything. And it's not fun. And it can be downright scary for people who have like bigger issues. I had a friend Mm. who was here recently with a pulmonary embolism. and was Mm. in the hospital three weeks with no one who spoke English and no phone because he lost it. And that's, you know, it's a bit of a horror story. And he survived and he was fine. And and everyone else I know who spent time in the hospital is they're fine, but it's not comfortable and it's not, it's not an easy trip. So like that. That's a tough part of being an expat here. Um, when you get sick, that bothers me. And that's hard. Um, although there's great private healthcare. If you don't have it, that can be difficult. Um, other difficulties, I bet that's it. There's no other ones, really. I mean, once you get used to the bureaucracy of whatever city or country you're living in, once I realize how things work here, you can choose to play by the rules of the game or you can fight against it as much as you want. But When you realize something is a certain way, you got to just end up going with it. So the things that make my life difficult here also make my life really funny. Uh, These are great stories for my dad. He howls when I tell him about how difficult things can be. Like I said with the plumber before, anytime I needed to go to the hospital, he howls. He thinks it's terribly hilarious. Uh, So at the end of the day, I mean, you can just choose to laugh of the things that don't work out. Because 99% of my life is easy. And fun and is full of joy. So mm-hmm. I don't harp too much; and that doesn't work out. But I guess as an expat, and I think anyone who's lived abroad, the the the, the worst thing is is thinking like, if I get sick, what is the healthcare going to be like, and how are they going to treat me? It can be it can be a real struggle for people. So I feel bad for anyone who's got chronic issues and has to deal with that because it can be absolutely terrifying. And mm-hmm. I've had bad experiences here, but I've also always gotten better, and uh, and they've taken care of me. So you know. It can't be all that bad if I'm still kicking.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Going back to something you said earlier, you mentioned that, oh, well, maybe in 10 years you have a second location. So that did get me wondering, I mean, could Budapest be your forever home if you have thought about 10 years in a second location?
1: Budapest is my forever home. I often tell people mm. they're going to have to get out of here in a box. Mm -hmm. I don't ever expect to live anywhere else. Now, with that said, it is comforting to me, like I said earlier, that I have that, I have that passport. I have an American passport. I can go home, you Mm -hmm. know, like. There is something comforting, you know. I I, right before I got on this call with you, I was at my friend's house for a brunch, and I'll be going there after this because she's leaving to go back to the United States Mm -hmm. because her job is a little toxic here, and her husband got a new job back in the states. But there's also there was also a little bit of worry because there's a war on our doorstep. Mm -hmm. The the war with Ukraine is not far from where I live, Mm -hmm. so you know, and I have friends who take in refugees here all the time. One of our friends uh, who used to own uh, the hostel I used to work at, he he opened it up and it's only, it's a refugee shelter just for people passing through that can't find anywhere else to live. And that's a real part of our life. War is absolutely affecting like the fact that I'm here. If war spills out into Hungary, like what do I do that? I don't know. I really don't. Mm-hmm. But I do, do take comfort and solace in the fact that I have a passport that will allow me to go back to the United States if I need to feel safer or if I need to start over. And as we said before, like, I'm not afraid to start over, mm-hmm. but I never would leave here. I don't even think if War came, I would leave. I think I'd somehow find a way to stick it out and find a way unless my life was, or my friend's life were in imminent danger. But mm-hmm. I'm not worrying about that right now. It doesn't feel like it, it feels like it's, it's worlds away, although I know it's not. Mm-hmm. I still feel here and it's absolutely my home and I feel so indebted to the friends I've made here and the city in itself. Like I can't imagine feeling this much gratitude about another place, but I mean, maybe that's just because I've spent 13 years here being in absolute love with my home. Mm-hmm. So I just I couldn't, I couldn't imagine leaving it. So yeah, this is my forever place. If I do expand my business to other countries, which I don't, I mean, I don't think I would, but if I got to travel more because of my job, that'd be pretty fantastic. Cause there's a lot of places I want to see, but, I always want to be able to come back here. Even when I go on vacation now, when I go to the United States to see my family, it only takes about a week before I'm like, I, I got a good home, <laughs> which means I need to get back. So yeah, this is this is this this is my boomerang place. I'm always coming back, and I never want to. Leave.
0: So I'm going to ask you. This is going to be our last question. Then, what's your definition of home?
1: Definition of home. Um, <clears throat> I think home, I don't think it's a physical thing at all. I think you can Mm -hmm. feel home in all places. I think home is a place that lets you feel secure, Mm -hmm. makes you feel feel safe enough to take all the risks you want without people having anything except love for you. So that's how I feel here. I feel so empowered by my community and by the place that I live in that I can do, I can take any chance I want and I never feel like I won't have a safety net of my community around me. So home is where you feel free enough to make an absolute fool of yourself mm-hmm. without the repercussions, you know, that you would normally get, you know, if I can make a mistake and and bounce back, I'm always safe. That, that's home. So yeah.
0: Okay, so that's basically going to be it for today. I want to thank you, Smike, for taking the time to be interviewed by me on this podcast, Are We Home Yet?, a podcast where I talk to expats about what it's like living abroad, the struggles, the joys, and... Hopefully future expats are out there listening and saying, hmm, wow, well, maybe I want to try that. Maybe I want to take a chance. Maybe I want to have an adventure, experience something amazing for a short time or for a long time. And, you know, I want to say thank you as well to all of the listeners for tuning in. And with that, I hope everyone has a great day. Have a great day, Smike.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
0: So listen in to my next interview with Sam. Sam became a foreign exchange student at 17 years old, studying abroad in Brazil. That was her first time getting on an international flight and she never looked back. She loved seeing the world so much that she became a flight attendant and still flies to this day decades later. She's been living in Italy with her boyfriend and absolutely loving it. So Listen into this interview if you want to find out about becoming a flight attendant, living in Italy, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember to hit subscribe and to stay updated, head over to Are We Home Yet podcast.com. I'm Jalila Clark. See you next time.